So in Taiwan this morning, we woke to the news that Henry Kissinger had passed away on Wednesday, November 29th, at the very ripe old age of 100. Kissinger was a national security advisor and the Secretary of State under two American presidents, Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. He was an influential but very controversial diplomat. He won a Nobel Peace Prize for his work, but this was uh, controversial to say the least. And he was one of the architects of the United States moving diplomatic recognition from Taipei to Beijing. That switch was set up during trips to China in 1971 and 1972. Today, in the People's Republic of China, the Chinese state media is mourning his death with an outpouring of praise for his decades of boosting PRC-US relations. He was, they say, a good friend of China. Yeah, and one is, uh, you, you prefer not to speak ill uh, of the dead, but it must be said, he was no friend of Taiwan. Apart from his initial readiness to sell out the ROC back in 1971, there was, through many decades, his continued silence on China's threats against a democratic Taiwan. We can see where he stood by his travel history. He traveled to China soon after the Tiananmen Square protests and massacres of 1989, and uh, he called for continued positive engagement. And you know what? He never visited Taiwan, not once. Yet, he visited China over 100 times. Actually, his most recent visit was this summer when he had a meeting with Chinese President Xi. Wow, more than 100 trips to China. That's incredible. And not one to Taiwan. And these trips to China, they weren't um, sightseeing or pleasure trips, were they? No. Back in 1982, he founded a consulting company, a for-profit consulting company called Kissinger Associates. And part of its work was matchmaking foreign investors with Chinese business. He's not alone, sadly, though, in being a former politician using his influence for profitable friendship with the Chinese communists. Yes, unfortunately. But we definitely want to extend our condolences to his family. He was a, a very effective, if controversial, individual. So we decided that we would now replay our episode on Nixon and Kissinger meeting Mao back in 1972. This episode was originally released on April 13th, 2023. Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. So, Taiwan in the 1970s was a place where the economic miracle that we've talked about before was totally underway. Taiwan was becoming a manufacturing powerhouse. But on the political front, it was a really tough decade. On the 25th of October, 1971, the United Nations voted to replace the Republic of China on Taiwan with the People's Republic of China, the PRC or just China, as the, quote, only legitimate representative of China to the United Nations. Yes, a tough year for the ROC. A few months before that expulsion from the United Nations, there'd been another setback. U.S. President Richard Nixon had announced that he would visit China. 
Yes, and that came on July 15, 1971, in a live television broadcast. Nixon announced he would visit China the following year, and bam, was this a bombshell. Nixon, I mean, we're talking about Richard Nixon. He had built his political career on being totally anti-communist. And here he was reaching out to Mao Zedong, reaching out to a China still experiencing the madness of the Cultural Revolution. It, it was a slap in the face to the Republic of China, which was a Second World War ally and also a Cold War ally. The American and worldwide reception to Nixon's message was generally positive, but there were obvious exceptions. The Japanese, for example, they felt insulted. The prime minister had only been informed 30 minutes before Nixon's television announcement. Taiwan's leaders and the public were angry and concerned too. But the KMT's criticism was relatively muted. They were hoping that things wouldn't go forward. So the Taiwanese were surprised? They, they didn't foresee this? They knew the writing was on the wall. There were disturbing signs that the Americans would switch. But... Mm, like that uh, ping-pong diplomacy thing? The Chinese government inviting the American table tennis team to China? Right. Uh, that was April 71. But there were signs before that. We can look at them later. It was not as much of a surprise as the KMT made out, but I don't think they knew the specifics. Uh, you know, Kissinger's trip, which had set things up for Nixon. Well, Kissinger's secret trip in early July led to that July 15th announcement. So a trip by National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger to China earlier that month of July. Kissinger was in Pakistan, supposedly on a fact-finding mission, but this was a cover. So first, he faked illness as an excuse to drop his official engagements in Pakistan. Then Kissinger put on a disguise and sneaked hmm. aboard a Chinese airplane waiting for him at an airport in the Punjab. Wow. An interesting side story to that is... There was a Pakistani journalist surnamed Beg who sometimes contributed stories to the UK paper, the Daily Telegraph. He was at the airport and he recognized Kissinger. So not, not a great disguise, I think. Anyway, mm. a loose-lipped airport official confirmed this journalist's suspicions. Yes, it was National Security Advisor from the States, Kissinger. And this journalist he found out that Kissinger was heading for China. What a scoop. Yeah. But it's a scoop that never saw the light of day, because uh, when he contacted his superiors, they thought he'd been drinking and decided the chance of embarrassing themselves was uh, too high to run with the story. Wow. So, I mean, there was a lot of reasons for Kissinger's secrecy. Forewarning would have alarmed allies, and there would have been plenty of domestic critics, and the resulting controversy could have possibly just scuttled the whole summit. Yeah, but keeping it secret meant that there was no debate inside the State Department, those people with the greatest foreign policy knowledge. So I think it was a mistake to keep things so secretive. Incredibly, Nixon and Kissinger hadn't even informed Secretary of State William Rogers. Okay, so some explanation for non-Americans out there. The Secretary of State is a U.S. president's chief foreign affairs advisor. Kissinger would himself later become Secretary of State. He was that from 1973 to 77, but not at the time of the historic Mao-Nixon meeting. 
So anyway, Kissinger, who's not the head of the State Department, he's on the secret mission to China, but he doesn't meet Mao this time around, does he? No, he negotiated with Mao's number two, Zhou Enlai. During several days of talks, Kissinger made it clear that the Americans were willing to end their support for Taiwan. Kissinger claimed in his memoirs that Taiwan was, quote, only mentioned briefly, end quote, during the meeting, but declassified documents, uh, transcripts of the meetings released in 2002, they showed otherwise. Yeah, they do indeed. In fact, the first third of the meeting was almost entirely occupied with Taiwan. Zhou made it clear that Taiwan was the stumbling block to establishing relations between the United States and the PRC. To move forward, the U.S. had to recognize China as the sole legitimate government in China, and of course, Taiwan as an inalienable part of Chinese territory that must be restored to the motherland. Kissinger assured Joe, we are not advocating a two-China solution or a one-China, one-Taiwan solution. And he promised that the U.S. would soon switch diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China. It was not, he explained, possible to dump Taiwan right away, but it was just a matter of a few years. They could do it in Nixon's second term. And as a display of goodwill, the Americans gave China a large amount of secret U.S. spy satellite data on the Soviet Union. Wow, spy satellite data on the Soviet Union. That's a big give. And what did America get in return? Kissinger didn't set any preconditions for the Nixon summit. He didn't get any concessions or promises of possible help uh, ending the, the Vietnam War. Hmm. Uh-huh. The Vietnam War. In a few words, just the Vietnam War. This is the cloud that hung over everything at this time. The United States really stepped up involvement in Vietnam in 1965. That's when they sent ground troops there. And a few years later, the Americans are looking to get out to get out in a dignified way, and also with the government in Saigon that they were propping up, not failing and not falling. This was part of Nixon's motivation for the trip to China. Yes, yes. The genesis of the Nixon trip was in the late 1960s, as both China and the United States saw a need for improved relations. For the Americans, re-establishing relations with China promised to put pressure on the Soviets and also, yes, helping them exit the war in Vietnam. Because China was heavily supporting fellow communist neighbor, North Vietnam. In the late 1960s, China actually was very much in fear of a Soviet attack. Relations between China and the USSR soured in the late 1950s, officially ending in 1962, and relations between the two deteriorated to the point of actually some deadly violence during a series of military engagements along the border between the USSR and China in 1969. The Chinese were worried about the Soviets for good reason. The Soviets had been asking about uh, likely reactions to the possibility of uh, hmm, launching strikes against their southern neighbor. Basically, they were asking for permission to take out the PRC's nuclear missile program. And it's a request the Americans uh, said, no, no, you, you can't do that. <laughs> wow. Just imagine what the world would be like if uh, things had gone differently. So anyway, Washington and Beijing did not have direct relations. So they communicated quietly through third countries, hinting at wanting to meet. 
Credit for the first public move, I think, goes to Mao, actually, who invited, mm. and we talked about that American table tennis team, to, to Beijing in April of 1971. So you fast forward 10 months, and on February 21st, 1972, Nixon's plane touched down on the airport tarmac in Beijing. There was no crowd at the airport, nor were there any crowds lining the roads as the motorcade made the trip into central Beijing. Denying Nixon the face of a big Chinese welcome, it was a deliberate snub. It wasn't the first or the last insult either. Actually, the airplane had been uh, made to touch down in Shanghai first. Uh, it was a, uh, a throwback to the old embassies to the emperor. They didn't like people turning up directly in Beijing. Uh, you had to uh, go through another city. So then, a few hours after arriving, Nixon was summoned ahead of schedule to meet with the world's most prominent revolutionary, Mao Zedong. Zhou Enlai and Kissinger were also at the meeting, and this meeting took place in Mao's rather shabby study. There was an arc of chairs and spittoons by the sides. Spittoons. Uh, you can explain that. <laughs> well, have you ever seen one of those movies from the Wild Wild West and they're chewing tobacco and they're spitting into that kind of bowl, little silver bowl? Well, that's from America, but they used it in China as well for um, also spitting into and sometimes to clear their throat. Other times they would spit to, to make a point. <laughs> Thankfully, mm. in this meeting, however, the reports are that Mao and Zhou didn't need to express themselves uh, via spitting. Yeah, it uh, sounds like a pretty shabby meeting. Uh, Mal wasn't in good health and he had trouble expressing himself. Yeah, he was all like swollen his face and there was a doctor waiting outside and yeah, it was barely understandable. He, he didn't have to stay alert too long. The meeting lasted 65 minutes. And yeah, that was the only time Nixon met Mal during the trip. So for a, a so-called diplomatic triumph, as this trip is often called, uh, strange, just one meeting. And this meeting, uh, if you look at the transcript, it reveals a surprising amount of groveling from the Americans. Kissinger, man, he really went for it. He's like, I used to assign the chairman's collective writings to my classes at Harvard. And Nixon chimed in with, the chairman's writings moved a nation and have changed the world. Oh, so get me a bucket. Okay, so... Mao, in contrast, was quite dismissive. He brushed aside Nixon's attempts to discuss geopolitics and directed the conversation from Nixon to Kissinger. What about asking him to be the main speaker today? And again, Mao said, we too must not monopolize the whole show. It won't do if we don't let Dr. Kissinger have a say. And do you have anything to say, doctor? <laughs> Interesting. And Mao really kept the discussions to, to small talk. He didn't want a record of anything more substantial because he had to protect his image as the leading anti-American revolutionary on the planet at the time. As it was, he took a lot of flack from his allies for siding up to the enemy, criticism that he appeased by giving these upset allies uh, more aid. And as we mentioned in part two of our two-part episode, that was uh, season two, episode seven, on Taiwanese independence leader Peng Ming-ming, his mysterious escape from house arrest in Taiwan was a subject of talks between Kissinger and Zhou Enlai during the July 1971 trip, and Peng Ming-ming came up again here in the Mao and Nixon meeting. 
Mao-fed American support for the Taiwanese independence movement, and he thought escape of uh, this Peng Mingmin seemed like proof of American involvement. Kissinger strongly denied American involvement and promised that no American personnel or agency would help support the Taiwan independence movement. And Nixon affirmed this, saying, I endorse that commitment at this meeting today. Zhou Enlai was still not placated. He said, I have received material to the effect that Peng Mingmin was able to escape with help from the Americans. Nixon then responded, Chiang Kai-shek did not like it. You did not like it either. Neither did we like it. We had nothing to do with it. Kissinger then adds, To the best of my knowledge, that professor was probably able to leave because of help from American anti-Jiang Kai-shek left-wing groups. And if you want the truth of how Dr. Peng Ming escaped from Taiwan from house arrest, go listen to episodes six and seven of season two from Mosophiles podcast. Hmm, nice Kissinger accent there. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this meeting may have lasted just over an hour, but Nixon's trip to China was a week of events. And they were broadcasting gold. Yeah, Nixon and China, a massive news story, particularly for television. 1972 was uh, the year that the sales of color television sets in the U.S. surpassed black and white ones. So for many viewers, the trip was the first big occasion they saw in color. And there was saturation coverage. Gave the American public a really unique look at China a hermit nation uh, that had been shut off for decades. Through Nixon's travels and activities, they got to see Chinese banquets, Chinese opera, the Great Wall, the Imperial Palace. And the final stop of the trip was Shanghai, where the two sides jointly announced an understanding known as the Shanghai Communique. Both countries expressed goodwill, a desire to work towards normalization of relations, and closer economic and cultural contacts, and they both agreed that there was only one China. As a follow-up gesture of goodwill, China and the United States made an exchange of gifts. The Chinese presented the Americans with two giant pandas, which makes sense, and they were instant stars, of course, upon their arrival at the National Zoo in Washington. Yep. Do you recall what the Americans gave the Chinese? And As a clue, it was a terrible choice. Oh, I don't know this. (laughs) It wasn't a clock, was it? Because uh, giving a clock sounds like attending a funeral and you're not supposed to give clocks. No, not not a clock. It was a pair of musk oxen. Musk oxen. What in the world are musk oxen? Yeah, the first time I ever came upon it was reading about uh, this trip. The musk oxen is a huge, hairy, and malodorous animal from Alaska. (laughs) Wow, a big, hairy, stinky animal. (laughs) Kind of an encapsulation of every negative Chinese stereotype about Westerners. Indeed, yeah. And to make matters even worse, when these two musk oxen arrived, they were suffering from the mange. Mange. Uh, Anybody who's had a a pet, a dog or cat probably knows a little bit about this. A skin disease that causes patches of hair to fall off. Wow. Okay. So big, hairy, stinky, mangy ox versus (laughs) a couple of uh, cute looking pandas. The pandas won this round of diplomatic interaction. 
Yeah, yeah. It's a funny story, but I think it's one that nicely encapsulates the, the poor choices and ignorance surrounding the trip from the American side. And this was not the great diplomatic triumph it's been painted as. After the historic Mao-Nixon summit, very little actually changed. Nixon won re-election in 1972, but very soon he was in trouble with the Watergate scandal, and he resigned in 1974. So Nixon left the political stage before he could fulfill his promise to switch diplomatic recognition from the ROC on Taiwan to the PRC of China. And over in China, Mao's spending most of his time in bed, declining health. When he died in 1976, um, there'd been no real opening of China. And as we mentioned before, Nixon's main motivation for going to China was to get help with winding down the Vietnam War. He mistakenly thought China could and would pressure the stubborn Vietnamese. Mao didn't, however, cut his military support for the communists in Vietnam. Instead, he stepped it up. Nor did he back down on his anti-imperialist rhetoric or reduce his funding for revolutions around the world. Right. And, you know, the Chinese role in the Indo-China wars has been understated. Support from the PRC was probably the deciding factor in both the first, so that's against the French, and the second Indochina war, that's against South Vietnam, backed by the US. There were Chinese anti-aircraft, artillery and missiles, coupled with logistical support and repairing Vietnamese infrastructure damaged by airstrikes. You know, that went a long way in negating US air superiority. Yeah, the Chinese had large numbers of Chinese forces in North Vietnam. I mean, they didn't talk about it, but they did. And although they stayed up in the north, that freed up North Vietnamese resources to be sent south. But more than anything, China's commitment constrained American war strategy. Mao let it be known through indirect channels such as the Pakistani president that the Chinese would intervene in a big way if American involvement became too great. So the Americans howled back in fear that things would blow up. The Korean War, not that far back, is a great example of that full-scale Chinese intervention. In the Korean War, there were nearly 3 million men from China, and China's threatening, possibly igniting World War III here. So, John, you have a pretty negative take, actually, on Richard Nixon's visit to China. Is this primarily because of your love for the Republic of China? Maybe, in part, but... I'm thinking more of what we just said about Vietnam. Nixon gave away too much and got too little in return. Hmm. Yeah, the meeting helped ease tensions between China and the United States. And although it didn't exactly open China to the world, eh, it's fair to say it like um, pried the door open a little. Yes, some positives. I'm just saying it's been vastly oversold, especially in regard to Kissinger and Nixon. But Mao too. He may have played a better hand of poker than Nixon did, but the very fact that he needed to meet with Nixon was the result of his massive blunder in ruining Sino-Soviet relations. And the Taiwan issue, on which Mao seemed to have won a major concession, ultimately proved a disappointment. Washington's switching of diplomatic recognition from Taipei to Beijing didn't come until after Mao's death. 
He died in 1976, and diplomatic recognition came in 1979 under the Carter administration. And I guess this really had always just been a matter of time, right? Summit or no summit. Yep, a matter of time, but it was especially hard coming from an old friend like Nixon. Nixon and Chiang Kai-shek liked each other. Nixon had visited Taiwan multiple times, first in 1953 had a long talk with Jiang Kai-shek, with Madam Jiang, uh, interpreter uh, for them. He visited again in 56. This is when he was vice president under Eisenhower. And then in the 1960s, he visited again when he was in the opposition. Over time, this anti-Red China Cold War warrior changed his mind about the geopolitical situation. It seems that Nixon came around to believe that Chiang Kai-shek's dream of returning to the mainland was not going to work out. And to be fair, he was probably right. And that was kind of the consensus that a lot of people were coming to at that time. But if we had to put a date on when both sides are thinking that it's inevitable that the U.S. has to deal with Beijing, the reality of the PRC being China and not the island of Formosa, what year, John, would you pick as the, the year? Mm, oh, tricky. Publicly, 1967. Nixon, this is the year before his presidency, he's published an article. And in this article, he expressed a desire to improve relations with the PRC. Uh, that was a real blow to Chiang Kai-shek. Okay, but that's uh, in public. Nixon must have been thinking it earlier. Yeah, but everyone's thinking it earlier. <laughs> Yeah, as in the idea of Taipei representing China. Really, there's only one way this is reality. The nationalists would have had to return and retake the mainland. Yeah, for that, we, we need to go back to 1962, CKS, Chiang okay, Kai-shek, and the nationalists. They really become very strident. They're talking about retaking the mainland. Sounds quite serious. 1962, so China's suffering from the carnage of the Great Leap Forward, uh, which has just ended uh, a year back. And then there's been this Sino-Soviet split, and the PRC has not yet developed nukes. And 1962, if you're a history buff, you'll probably remember that was the same year of the Cuban Missile Crisis. October 1962, the superpowers brought the world to the brink of atomic catastrophe. So the Americans don't have an appetite for a possible war with China or giving the Soviets an excuse to align with the Chinese again. And then in 1964, the PRC detonates a nuclear bomb. CKS was immensely disappointed that the Americans wouldn't take out the Chinese nuke program. Right. But I would say the next year, 1965, is when the dream of retaking the mainland dies. So with the United States' involvement in Vietnam, this was a, an opportunity for Taiwanese, for the ROC. In the summer of 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson wrote a personal letter to Chiang Kai-shek thanking him for the ROC support and asking for greater ROC participation in the war. And then CKS took this to heart. At September 22nd, his son, Jiang Jingguo, was in Washington, D.C., he had a two-hour meeting at the Pentagon where he presented an amazing proposal to Robert McNamara, U.S. Secretary of Defense. The proposal was called the Great Torch 5. Great Torch? That's the, I don't get it. 
not a great name. Torches, lighting a fire, and uh, the five comes from five provinces in southern China. Under this plan, ROC forces with U.S. government logistical and transportation support would seize five southwestern provinces of the Chinese mainland from where Hanoi was continuing to receive massive crucial supplies, PRC uh, aid going into Vietnam. The nationalists would thereby cut off the PRC supplies and help the Americans. Interesting. So taking back China and helping Vietnam from southern China. And I assume their plan was that the people in China would rise up and overthrow the communists. Yeah. But there wasn't enough certainty. And you can't really plan such a risky move on the unproven hope that we'll be greeted as liberators. History has shown that. The Americans didn't take Chiang Kai-shek up on this offer. Yeah, we're going to run out of time, but there's a little-known story uh, from this time. Secret talks between the Soviets and the nationalists, yes, the USSR and the ROC. Mm, What's that saying? An enemy of my enemy is my friend? The Soviets and the KMT had a common enemy in the PRC, China. And as the Soviets were contemplating attacking China... They thought, hey, the KMT attacking in the South would you know, be quite beneficial and maybe ensure success. It never happened, but some of the groundwork uh, for it did take place. Attacks on the Chinese coast and a buildup of nationalist troops up near the Golden Triangle. But yes, there was opposition in both Moscow and Taipei and disagreements over what winning would look like. The Soviets wanted to replace the CCP with a Soviet-friendly communist version of their own. And the KMT was like, no need. We're already the government of China. So you can see how this wouldn't have worked out. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Formosa Files. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross.